Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to talk about anxiety. Deep breath. Yes. Deep breath. Maybe close your eyes if you need to. Focus on yourself. Focus on a positive mantra. Yeah. Maybe lie down if you need to. We won't judge you. Find a soft pillow. Yeah. And rest your head against it or squeeze it for dear life. Yeah. Like Elmira and pets. Just squeeze because you love it so much. Yeah. Anxiety is a a topic near and dear to Mm -hmm. my brain. I shouldn't say dear to my brain. My brain hates it and is constantly afflicted by it. I feel like Carolina should go ahead and have a moment of transparency and let people know I have generalized anxiety disorder. When were you diagnosed with that? Uh, probably last year when I really got into therapy for realsies <laughs> because my instead brain- of just to play poker with your therapist. <laughs> yeah. Instead of just doing it just to, for the cachet of yeah. saying, I have a therapist. Ooh, look at me. Um, yeah, I mean, like, things kind of hit a point, especially with, I think, turning 30, mm-hmm. getting engaged to be married, all of these, like, big life things happening that made me take a bit of a, a step back and want to dig into patterns, you know, that I didn't want to carry with me into the rest of my 30s and marriage. Sounds smart. Yeah. I mean, had you struggled with anxiety uh, your whole life? Oh, yeah, definitely. All my life. Um, And the more I learn about it, the more astounding it is how those patterns really took root at such young ages. Yeah. You know, just like coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. that you develop and how even though I... You know, feel like I am very different than the person that I was, obviously, when I was like 10 or 12 or a teenager, even in my early 20s, still those same patterns of just dealing with day to day life. Um, they hang around. Yeah. No, I definitely struggle with anxiety. I haven't received any sort of diagnosis. I'm also in therapy, but I do just say it for the cachet. <laughs> it's true. Caroline's always <laughs> like, my therapist this, my therapist that. <laughs> if she doesn't exist. I really just go sit at a McDonald's for an hour a day. Well, now it's breakfast all day. So. <laughs> Perfect. I never have to leave. So many egg McMuffins. But yeah, no, um, you know, in our couple speak episode, we, we touched on the idea of peaks and valleys in a relationship. And when my boyfriend and I were working on some issues in our relationship together, um, I started having uh, like low grade, I wouldn't say that they were, uh, totally debilitating, but like low grade panic attacks, if you want to call them that. And I've noticed that ever since then, even basic stuff that stresses you out, like somebody cuts you off in traffic or like you're trying to prepare to record two podcasts or something, really basic things now lead to like an elevated anxiety level. And I don't just mean like you're stressed out, maybe you're sweating a little. The full on, like, I can't get a deep breath. I feel like my chest is caving in. There's so much pressure on my head. Like, all of these sort of hallmark anxiety symptoms are more likely to crop up. And I have a feeling it's so common for it to take something like 
a panic attack, low grade, high grade, whatever, because that was a similar experience that I had. Um, something like that happened to me that really got my attention. Like there were so many red flags. My brain was just finally waving that get us to take care of these things that mm-hmm. we've just been managing in our in our own, you know, very <laughs> flawed kinds of ways. Not that it's not OK to to be flawed, but I should say maybe dysfunctional kinds of ways. Yeah. And I mean, I think what keeps a lot of people not being a psychologist, but I think uh, in doing reading about this topic, what stops a lot of people from getting help for anxiety is that for a lot of people, it's just a baseline state. Like, I'm just anxious and neurotic and I can play it off as funny and like I'm a Woody Allen character or something. But it really, really can be debilitating. I mean, if you're having a panic attack, like every time you burn dinner or something, you know, like that's not exactly healthy. And so those are some good red flags, like you said, to actually talk to somebody, get help. Maybe you don't need medicine. Maybe you need therapy. Maybe you do need medicine. There's a whole range of things that um, that you can do to help improve your life once you realize, like, I am super struggling with anxiety. Yeah. And I also feel like it's something that we are talking about more and more, not just you and me, but we do talk about our respective anxieties together, which I think is really helpful. But even just among other girlfriends of mine or just the female conversations that are happening online, I feel like I just see it more and more of mm-hmm. women acknowledging that this is something that they deal with, whether it is a more clinical kind of thing or whether it is just the general anxiousness, nervousness, however you want to describe it. And I think it's it's really interesting that this is happening. And some people think that there is almost a millennial anxiety epidemic afoot, which is usually blamed on technology, social media, um, work life being completely imbalanced because they are now blended and they are one and the same and so forth. Yeah, we see a lot of those environmental reasons bandied about when we talk about why people seem to be struggling more with anxiety. And then you see them uh, magnified when people talk about women and they all always cite the wage gap, having to look beautiful and young all the time, like all of these things that are specific to women. But what we'll get into more in this conversation is that it's that could be a part of it. Like everybody's got pressures in their life, but there's also a bit of of nature to contend with, too. Yeah, because uh, a statistic that we will repeat a number of times in this episode is that women are twice as likely to report anxiety. And we've talked about this before on the podcast. In fact, I had even forgotten, Caroline, that we had done an anxiety-related episode a while back um, because that's what happens when you've made over 700 podcasts. <laughs> you forget sometimes. Um, but it seems so... So current and so relevant mm-hmm. to to right now, because there is still this question mark of why are women in particular so anxious and are we really yeah. all that anxious? So first, let's just do some anxiety 101. This is coming from the National Institutes of Health, um, and, and it's important to distinguish what's normal and what's abnormal because temporary anxiety, hypervigilance, and even fear is completely normal. Yeah. It's part of just being a human. Yeah, but the thing that's not normal is when all of that stuff sticks around. So long-term anxiety that looms and ends up diminishing and interfering in your quality of life. 
So let's get more specific then about that dysfunctional long-term anxiety. It has to do more with the inability to focus away from concerns, despite rationally understanding that your reaction to this thing is way bigger than the thing itself. And Caroline is vigorously nodding her head. For instance, so in... Georgia, the company that mails out your tag renewal stickers uh, went bankrupt and nobody told anyone. And so my birthday is coming up at the end of November. You can send your presents too. just kidding. And so all of a sudden last week, I realized, wait, I never received the registration renewal thing in the mail. And, you know, with the thing where you send in your emissions test and all of this stuff. And so I start panicking this morning, like literally to the point of pounding chest, pounding heart, sweating red in the face, like panicking about, well, I need to get my emissions tested. When am I going to do that? Like, I've got to get that done. Um, and then once I do that, like, because they're not mailing it out, I actually have to go to the tag office, which that's anxiety inducing. I've got to bring all these forms, fill out all this stuff. I've got to have my tag and title and blah, 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 blah. And then I talked to my boyfriend and he's like, no, 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 no. It's, it expires on your birthday. So your birthday's at the end of November. You literally have like a month from now to do this. And I was like, but now I can't stop panicking. And so even though like all morning I've been like, it's fine, even though I'm panicking about this tag thing, which is really not a big deal and I can handle it very easily. And oh, I, but now I need to, to read for the podcast. Oh, my God. How can I focus on reading for our podcast today if I've got to worry about the tag thing? And it's like um, <clears throat> brain. Uh, we don't have to worry about these things. It's fine. But like it physically just took over. It like didn't matter how much I rationalized it. I was still sitting there like, um, uh, my whole life is crashing down around me. Oh, this is unfortunate. Maybe I should just drink some more water and less coffee. I mean, to be fair, Caroline, the whole tag situation is a headache. It's a pain. And, and the fact that they send it on your birthday is like the rudest present ever <laughs> because it's like, oh, here is a couple hundred dollars government. <laughs> of course, I want to go have an emissions test. Um, and also, I think it's maybe just a sign that you need an assistant. You know, you have I've, a therapist. Now you need an assistant. I've been, I joked about this to my boyfriend the other day because he is self-employed in the music industry. And I was like, hey, wouldn't that be funny? Dot, dot, dot. If we shared a personal assistant, I don't know how we would pay for one. So if anyone wants to be an intern of Girlfriend and Boyfriend, Inc., uh, that would be much appreciated. Isn't it Girlfriend, Dog, Boyfriend, Dog, Inc.? So correct. R.E., the couple speak podcast. Yes. <laughs> People love. Um, well, in those kinds of experiences, regardless of whether it is something that seems as minor as getting your tag renewed or something that is some legitimately life-altering event can involve more symptoms of this cyclical long-term anxiety like that unshakable sadness, which which will lead into depression. And depression and anxiety often go hand-in-hand. You can have a difficulty just relaxing in general. This is part of why um, I tend to watch my two guiltiest pleasures on television, Nashville, and scandal while cleaning. Wait, so meaning you're like keyed up while you're cleaning or you're cleaning and watching these shows to relax? I'm cleaning and watching the shows to relax. I would not be able to just sit down on the couch and watch an episode oh, of oh, Nashville. Oh. Because you're like, I have all these other things. To yeah, do. I would be like, there, there is dust on the floor. I must sweep it. 
I mean, and it's also just a handy way of, of getting the house clean while being entertained by Olivia Pope and co. Um, but those physical symptoms, Caroline, that you mentioned are also a big part of this as well. Anxiety is a very physiological kind of thing. It's not all just in our heads because it can lead to fatigue, headaches, muscle tension, difficulty swallowing, trembling, oh, yeah. twitching, sweating, as you mentioned, nausea. I get a heat in my chest, mm-hmm. um, having to go to the bathroom frequently, oh, yeah. which will happen. <laughs> I mean, I think this is just like general nervousness. But I'm a nervous peer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm definitely a nervous peer. In fact, I got to go <laughs> right now. Um, feeling out of breath, all of the things that you would expect. Yeah, no, I absolutely get those things. And deep breath. Um, I also get uh, I have a lot of trouble sleeping. Um, back when I started doing the podcast with you, Kristen, like, cause I had a day job and I was doing the podcast with Kristen on the side. Um, so the podcast was my side piece and I, it was like a shake up to my routine. I'm also a very routine driven person, very regimented. And so here there's like a little more work, a little routine shake up and suddenly I'm not sleeping. And it's interesting because I, I've talked about this on the podcast before, But during that time, I was at my gynecologist and I was telling her, I was like, you know, I'm really anxious lately. I'm pretty sure it's just like circumstantial. I'm having trouble sleeping or whatever. And she's she just wrote me a prescription for an anti-anxiety medication. And I was like, you don't know anything about anything that I'm dealing with right now. I'm not going to fill this prescription. But yeah, luckily, the sleeping the sleeping thing comes in waves, though. Like if I am the tiniest bit anxious about anything. My dad's the same way. Like, I'll run into him. When I was living at home, I'd run into my dad at, like, 3 in the morning. I'd be getting home <laughs> from being out with friends. And he'd be up, like, yeah, I just got up. I'm awake now. Gonna oh, have some coffee. That sounds so awful. Yeah. And so, I mean, neither my dad nor I, like I said, have been diagnosed with any type of specific anxiety disorder. I think we're just, like, kind of nervous people. <laughs> We probably the nervous urbans. That's right. Uh, The nervous urbans. But there are three primary types of anxiety disorder. We've got generalized anxiety disorder, which is what Kristen mentioned, which is that persistent, unrealistic worry that just sort of interferes with your functioning. It's so fun. It's so fun. Uh, You've got panic disorder. And also social anxiety disorder, which is actually the most common. And it's that extreme fear of being judged. It's it's this feeling. And I don't get it all the time. It really depends on, I mean, almost the day. But I might walk in somewhere and just immediately get this full body pressure dread feeling like I, I get hot all over feeling like everyone is looking at me. Everyone is judging me, whether it's what I'm wearing, whatever. Uh, and that can be so hard to break out of mentally. Yeah, I experience a lot of that. And, and listeners, you tell us. I think that it's a, a topic that we should circle back to and do our an entire episode on it because it's another one of those things where I'm hearing people talk about it more than ever before of saying, oh, I'm so socially anxious. Oh, my social anxiety this, my social anxiety that. And uh, this is actually something that especially happens on YouTube and within the YouTube community, um, where there's, there's even some debate over real social anxiety versus like legit social phobia. These people cannot leave their yeah. homes, which is part of why they're watching so many YouTube videos. Um, so I think that would be a great topic to revisit because it's, it's another thing that I also 
experience. Um, but I think that a lot of people confuse just general social angst with the actual disorder yeah. itself. Um, but when it comes to just anxiety disorders, this surprised me. The average age of onset was 31. <laughs> so, I'm about to turn 32. Cool. All right. Well, Caroline, I'm 30, so I'm a little ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, my brain, uh, well done. And the primary treatments for anxiety disorders are cognitive and behavior therapy, Exposure therapy, which is, when I think of exposure therapy, I think Tarantulas? No, I think of just being like thrown into a giant networking mixer event where I know no one and there's no alcohol being served. Like, okay, yeah, no, let me add to that. Okay, so we're being thrown into a networking event with no alcohol, but also the room is hot, so my hands are already sweaty from being nervous, but then it's hot in there, and so then I'm just sweaty all over in my hand. So then I, what I do, um, this is real life, like let's say I am holding a drink, and in this scenario it's non-alcoholic, so I'm holding my ice water, and I make sure to get my hand super wet and cold, and then, so when it comes to shaking somebody's hand, I'm like, oh, sorry, hang on, let me wipe my hand off. And then I go for the handshake, because it, it's two birds with one stone. Like, oh, she, her hand is wet. I'm just giving so much away, people are never going to shake my hand These again. These are great tips, though, Caroline. You're welcome. So, yeah, once at least my hand is cold then when I shake it, and it's been recently wiped off, so I'm like... And then if you have a cold hand, and you were to shake my mother hand, she would say, oh, cold hands, warm heart. And then I would hug her. <laughs> but if making your hands wet <laughs> and wiping them off slightly is not strong enough therapy, of course, there are antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, and also beta blockers. Yeah. And I mean, what I said earlier about not filling the prescription for the anti-anxiety med that my gynecologist prescribed is not to say that that's not valid and not important for a lot of people. I have several friends who are on these types of medications and it saves them. I mean, it's critical to their health. I'm just saying that for me, well, maybe I'll need it in the future. Right then, I felt very uncomfortable accepting a prescription from a health professional who wasn't fully familiar with my mental health stuff. Yeah, that's completely understandable. I, w- I would be nervous about getting on something that a doctor who didn't know me very well just, you know, quickly wrote yeah, I mean, a prescription she for. She knows my vagina really well, but not what's going on up here in the brain parts. Like, well, your vagina's a little anxious, so... <laughs> I'm sure it is. All nervous urban. <laughs> um, but who is this happening to? Um, in the United States, a commonly cited statistic is that 17% of us, we are the 17%, mm-hmm. will experience disordered anxiety at some point during any given year. So it's very common. And around the world, I thought this was uh, notable, around 7.3% of the population live with generalized anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. There's so many people. That is so many people. I mean, that 17% in the U.S. alone equates to 40 million people. Yeah. That's a lot of freaking people. That's a lot of anxiety <laughs> A lot happening. of nervous vaginas. And it's definitely on the rise, at least the diagnosis of it. Uh, for instance, in 2012, Reuters reported that anxiety disorders were up 1200 percent since 1980. And this really isn't news. I mean, we hear about it all the time, like, oh, Americans are more depressed than ever before. We're more anxious than ever before. Mm -hmm. Other countries don't have these problems that we're having. What's going on? So what is 
going on? I mean, and, and the thing is, that's a very tough question to answer because there's no one factor that explains anxiety disorders. Or, as psychiatrist George Macari put it more poetically in the New York Times, he said, quote, they implicate a possible symphonic interaction of DNA, hormones, neurons, anticipatory fantasies, memories, and thoughts, as well as the constraints and opportunities of our culture. So it's inescapable. Yeah. Is what I'm And complex. Yeah, and so not only do we want to talk about this because, selfishly, because we struggle with anxiety, and also 40 million Americans struggle with anxiety, but also because, like Kristen said, it reportedly affects twice as many women. But first, let's take a moment and, and, and look at the language of anxiety, because to me, this is relevant to how we, how we're talking about and considering anxiety today, because anxiety is such a catch-all term, because it can mean something diagnostic, or it can just mean feeling nervous about having to take a test or record a podcast, those very normal kinds of feelings. Mm -hmm. And written descriptions of anxiety go back to ancient Greece and Rome, but it's really not until the early 19th century that closer medical examinations and descriptions of anxiety emerge. And this was something that psychiatrist Macari was writing about in the New York Times. And I, I really enjoyed him laying out how it, it takes on different meanings within different languages. Yeah, in French, for instance, we have the word angoisse, which equates to tortured misery. That sounds pleasant. Uh, the German word angst which that should sound familiar, is that foreboding feeling in the pit of your stomach, like when you're me and you walk into a room full of people. The Spanish have the word angustia, which is that breathless panic that I experience all the time. (laughs) And in Britain, the word panic derived from the Greek myth of the god Pan, whose woodsy rabble-rousing induced terror in people. Pan was like the half-goat, half-man guy who, like messed with people. Yeah. I was going to say a bad word and then I remembered where we were. Anyway, he was a woodsy rabble rouser. He was a I think woodsy that, I think that sums it up well. But it was actually old Freud who was the first to coin anxiety as we think of it today. And he called it signal anxiety. And he was the first to propose it being purely physiologically. And of course, Freud assumed that anxiety just had to do with sex. Of course. Uh, he thought that it was a result of essentially your libido being all clogged up and that Ugh. you just needed to have more and better sex. I don't want I clogged up. No, I reject that in my brain. Um yeah, he talked about signal anxiety as being that small amount of anticipatory discomfort basically that leads you to like snowball into an anxiety spiral. <laughs> but in Freud's terms, could it be like an anxious vagina? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. If he didn't think that, I would be surprised. But even today, some clinicians and anxiety sufferers worry that the way we talk about anxiety is still too nebulous and casual because, I mean, anxiety itself, especially like clinically, is already murky. And and the fact that we don't have more precise language to define it is why some people think that we still don't fully understand it or maybe reflects how we don't fully understand it. Because like I said just a minute ago, anxiety has 
multiple meanings. But when it comes to this diagnostic criteria, anxiety is already murky territory. So the fact that we don't have more precise language maybe reflects how there are so many question marks when it comes to what is causing this on an individual level because there are theories about our autonomous nervous system acting up, past trauma imprinted on the brain, cultural and technological forces making life unbearable because seriously, Instagram makes everything look so perfect. (laughs) Why can't we have Instagram filters for our lives IRL? Um, (laughs) Then there are questions of genetic or maybe it's just like a hodgepodge of all of these things. So, I mean, I guess in a way, too, that's an awful lot for one word to sum up. Yeah, that's why I like all those all those uh, foreign words. That sounds like a really American thing to say. I all like those, those foreign words. All those foreign words. All those France fries. <laughs> I don't know. I like the Spanish word better. Just the idea of breathless panic, because I'm like, oh, my God, a word for my life. <laughs> and Angustia just sounds, you know... There's a little romance to it. I like it, yeah. Not like, that anxiety is romantic. Like, maybe if I had a daughter, I could name her that. No. <laughs> oh, poor girl. Uh, but personally, I did like Patricia Pearson's definition of it in her anxiety memoir, A Brief History of Anxiety. She defined it as fear in search of a cause. Oh, that's so perfect, because I think she talks about, as does anyone who struggles with anxiety and myself, she talks about how, like, even when things are going great, your brain still is in, like, seek and destroy mode in terms of, like, I need to find something to be worried about. Because it's, again, like I was saying earlier, it's like it's a baseline state for a lot of people. So if something's going really well, and I mean, this is something that I've worked through with my therapist. I have definitely gotten the stereotypical therapist question of, like, are you just causing trouble for yourself because things are going really well in your life? And it's like, well, yeah, probably. All Augustia over here on the couch. I know. I feel like if I were named that, I would totally be in like Victorian garb on a fainting couch. Oh, yes. That's how I just pictured myself with my like my arm over my face. But you as either you or Victorian Augustia, Mm -hmm. you is the quintessential anxiety patient. And that is another huge question mark that researchers and doctors are still trying to figure out of this anxiety gender gap. Because across the board, it's not just anxiety. Stress-related diseases are more common among women, hands down. And some of it might be because men simply aren't going to therapy. They aren't seeking out treatment for things that might be going on in their minds, in their brains. Um, Slate reported that men make up just 37% of therapy patients, for mm-hmm. instance. And when it comes to our physical doctors, men are less likely to go as well. So if they're not going to see their doctor, they're less likely to you know, be having these issues come up and having medications being written and diagnoses being handed out. Well, we also talked about language and the way that we talk about anxiety and like, oh, my God, what what's the cause? Is it nature, nurture, blah, 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 all this stuff? Well, part of the problem could be also the way we talk about anxiety, not only where it comes from, but the fact that we tend to frame anxiety as a woman thing. I know plenty of guys who struggle with some form of anxiety. And maybe if something is framed as like the feminine problem, the woman problem, maybe that could also put some men, not all men, some men off of seeking help for that particular 
problem. Yeah, and, and that whole issue is something that we'll circle back around to when we're talking about the the nurture side of the anxiety nature nurture conversation. Um, but if we look at kids up until 11 years old, boys and girls are equally prone to anxiety disorders. And this is something we've seen happen with so many issues, because once puberty hits, the girls change. Our periods change everything, it seems like. Uh, by 15 years old, girls are six times likelier to have an anxiety disorder. But... It takes an average of 9 to 12 years between the onset of these anxiety symptoms and getting a diagnosis. And this is nothing new if you've listened to other Sminty episodes about women's health issues. This should not be a new concept. And even once these women go get a diagnosis, even then some people think that it's still underdiagnosed. And then on top of that, too, there's the question of getting the right kind of treatment and sticking with that treatment Mm -hmm. long enough for it to make a real difference. Because here's the bonus information. Uh Uh-oh, I hear breathless panic. (laughs) My my angst is coming up. Uh, It doesn't get better with age. More recent research has actually found that as we get older, anxiety and depression worsens and becomes complicated by physical aches, pains, and panics. Well, I'm sure it also worsens if you're not, if you're one of the people who considers it such a baseline state that you're not doing anything to counteract it, that you're not actively using those techniques of breathing, maybe seeking cognitive behavioral therapy, seeking medication to help cope, help deal with it. Well, and if we think that women's report, self-reported healthcare needs are often delegitimized, think about it in terms of our senior population and how, you know, they're often brushed to the side Mm -hmm. as well. Um, But one thing I wanted to mention in terms of getting older and anxiety and something that jumped out to me in my personal experience and something that I have talked with other friends about because it's happened to them as well, is that just in our late 20s, the anxiety that happens after drinking alcohol mm. is out of control. The old anxiety hangover. And when I was looking for sources on this, there really wasn't that much on it outside of posts on like sobriety websites and like calmclinic.com. Um, but it's something that I know so exists because I've talked to so many people about it where it's like, yeah, when we were in college, we could drink all we wanted and we'd feel bad. We'd have the headache and the physical symptoms the next day. But hitting 30, mm-hmm. if I have a hangover, it is not so much physical. It is 100% mental. That's interesting. So you feel, do you feel more anxious or do you, I mean, what's... Yeah. I mean, that's, it's an anxiety hangover. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and it's uh, from, maybe I'm just hanging out with a lot of alcoholics, uh, <laughs> but I know a lot of people that it happens to. And it, among my circle of friends, this was not something that we talked about in our yeah. mid 20s. Yeah, no, I know that because I drink so much, I drink far less than I used to. Far, 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 far less than I used to. And that does coincide with the rise of my anxiety in my experience because I was always using it as a way to like get through social engagements and be funny and let loose and not be uptight and regimented. And so now that I'm like, Dealing with life issues, not by drinking them away or literally like running away from them. 
I'm having all of those panic symptoms because it's like, oh, I really have to like dig into this now. Well, and it's also worth keeping in mind, too, that just physically as we get older and by older, I mean, just like out of our 20s, our liver's capacity to process alcohol drastically slows down. So our bodies are just getting old in general. Yeah, we're just breaking down and turning to dust. It's fine. (laughs) It's fine. But now let's really focus in on this gender gap question, that statistic that women are twice as likely to have anxiety. So are women wired to worry? It seems like so much of the stuff that we read about anxiety points to women as being the more anxious sex, the people who are not only more likely to be anxious, but more likely to seek help for anxiety. And in the reading that we've done, it's clear that perhaps our brains are a little bit more sensitive to certain stress hormones and possibly less able to adapt to high levels of them. Yeah, that was something that Elle magazine talked about with Dr. Rita Valentino because she's done some pretty groundbreaking research on rats' brains because a lot of what we know about our own brains come from rats, which is funny. Um, and, and she found that female rats' brains were more sensitive to the stress neuropeptide corticotropin releasing factor or CRF and CRF essentially jolts your arousal, vigilance, and changes in attention. It's that hypervigilance that we think of in just average, you know, the the lowercase a anxiety. Yeah, so it's good when a bear is chasing you. Yeah, or a, a human that wants to kill you because you're a rat and you're running away with a cheese. <laughs> no! Or I guess it would be more a cat than a human. I'm thinking now of Tom and Jerry, and my mind has officially entered... Tangent land. But Valentino found that these female rat brains are a more sensitive to it and less, like you said, able to adapt when that CRF flooding happens. So it's like we're already prone to experience these heightened feelings. And when those heightened feelings happen, it we are also prone for them to handicap us. Yeah. So me getting stressed out about my tag renewal and then once all of those stress hormones just flood my brain. I think you need to get that tag renewed as soon as we finish this podcast, think, Caroline. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm, I'm a little just, worried about it for I you. I just need to like grab a sandwich and go handle this. A sandwich could make the tag office better. I think, yeah. A sandwich and speaking of, of drinking your anxiety away, <laughs> a sandwich and a cocktail. Yeah. I'm fun to hang out with at the DMV. But speaking of uh, these, these chemicals in our brain, hormones have also been implicated. And my assumption going into this was like, oh, of course, estrogen is to blame. It's got to be estrogen. But estrogen, it turns out, correlates to higher fear extinction capacity. What? Pretty cool, estrogen. But early in our menstrual cycles, when our estrogen is low, we might be more anxiety prone, probably because estrogen is lower And progesterone is all like, oh, hey, guys, I'm going to hang out in your brain and make you nervous. Yeah. And research has found that women on birth control pills, when it comes to anxiety, act like the women who have naturally low estrogen. And so it's important to note that your hormones will likely influence how those anti-anxiety medications work. And in terms of dudes, because anecdotally, dudes also have hormones. The enzyme aromatase converts testosterone into estrogen, therefore giving them 
that same benefit that women have when they have higher uh, higher estrogen. Yeah, so testosterone definitely buffers against you know that 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 fear and anxiety as well. And progesterone though is the real culprit it seems like hormonally speaking as I just mentioned because high levels of progesterone have been linked to actually changing the shape of our brain receptors that manage anxiety. And so for that reason, some researchers think that progesterone might explain things like prenatal and postpartum anxiety, considering that the body produces about a thousand times the normal amount of progesterone just in the third trimester of pregnancy, not to mention all of the hormonal stuff going on as you are and right after you give birth. Yeah, and so it shoots up in the third trimester and then you're back down once the baby pops out. So (laughs) your hormones are doing all sorts of crazy things to you. And then you have to breastfeed. (laughs) But not everyone is convinced with this idea that female brains are just wired to be anxious. In fact, Taylor Clark wrote a a book partially about this called Nerve. And in one of the excerpts from Nerve, Clark attempts to debunk the nature argument and, and really places a lot of the onus on nurture, saying that, listen, this is all about culture and parenting and how we raise girls different from boys. Yeah, so he attributes a lot of the gender gap to this thing he calls the skinned knee effect, basically coddling girls when they are anxious, upset, afraid, hurt. And he says that this predisposes them to react to unpleasant situations by being more anxious, getting that attention. And I was reading this and I was like, oh, crap. I am totally like that when I fight with my boyfriend or when just like someone disagrees with me or is like disapproving of me in some way. I totally get a little too hurt and anxious about it. And so the skinned knee effect uh, is alive and well in Caroline. Nervous Irvin, you know, what are you going to do? Oh, well, and he calls women actually, quote, needlessly nervous adult, which is hard where I'm sitting to not take a little personally because I'm like, I know I'm needlessly nervous, <laughs> but I, I, and I, I rationally understand that, mm-hmm. but turning it off is where I, I don't necessarily buy all of the culture explanations, but also people just have different brains because to Clark's point, a study found that we perceive women to be more anxious and nervously emotional than men. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are just qualities that we are likelier to attribute to a group of women versus a group of men. And this is also something that extends to issues like doctors' reluctance to treat women who are in pain, reporting pain compared to men, because there's an assumption that, oh, well, women are just over-dramatizing things. She's just very nervous and anxious. Just calm down. Just relax. Just Uh, relax, honey. All right, I will. Um, yeah, speaking of that whole perception thing, Clark talked about how we do have a tendency to label women as anxious, even when they aren't. And there was one study that he talked about that said that showed that even when men and women are experiencing the same levels of an emotion of any given emotion, women are seen and see themselves as being more emotional. So, I mean, I mean, there you've got a bias 
a internal bias and an external bias toward women being like the emotional anxious ones. And I wonder too, just considering how much more people are talking about their anxiety, how much more open women are about their the patterns of anxiety in their lives. I wonder if there is a limit to how much that's healthy and how much that is playing into that a little bit, almost like creating these self-fulfilling prophecies of like, oh, well, I'm just so anxious. I'm just really, really anxious. So, of course, when something happens, it almost gives us permission to feel anxious and nervous rather than trying to work through that anxiety. This also is is a solely Kristen Conger pet theory. Well, I mean, I think that's a that's a good point. I mean, I know that um, when I start to experience like those physical anxiety, the debilitating physical anxiety feelings, you know, my boyfriend tries to talk me down and he's like, listen, the more you focus on the fact that you feel like something's sitting on your chest, like the worse it's going to be, like we've got to distract you. You know, my therapist has told me like to start looking around the room and play a game of I spy with myself, basically. Like, just that does not sound fun. I know. I spy something gray. It's Kristen's shirt. Crap. I knew the answer already. Um, But I also think that talking about it helps. I know like when you and I discuss our anxiety, it actually kind of almost reduces mine, not because I'm like, haha, she has it too, but because it's like, oh, well, this is normal. Other people struggle with this and it sort of helps reduce anecdotally in Kristen and Caroline universe, helps reduce my feelings of I am so weird and not special, but like I I struggle with something that somebody else might not understand. And then again, there's the whole thing of like, with a lot of other conditions, not just anxiety, the more we talk about it and understand it, the more it's inevitably going to be diagnosed in people because diagnostic techniques are going to be better and more people who are educated about it or suspect they might struggle with it, whatever that condition may be, will end up going to the doctor and saying, please help me. Yeah, I think that that is absolutely a healthy side of talking about it. I similarly feel less crazy when I talk about it with you because it's like, oh, here is a smart, cool lady who also experiences similar patterns of irrational worry. Oh, totally. It's going to be okay. And that impact of destigmatizing mm-hmm. anxiety is so important because while, yes, it's so often framed as a woman's issue, I know there are so many guys out there who, because of how anxiety is talked about, how it is considered kind of a weak sort of thing, how it is something that's really more acceptable for women to go to a therapist and get help for versus men. And they're not getting the help that they really do need, you know, and, and that impacts your quality of life. Um, so what do we do, though, about this? Well, start exercising. Yeah. Like right right now, right now. And it's funny because this is something that, of course, we all know, right? Anecdotally and surface level, we all know that, A, we should exercise because we'll be healthier. It'll improve bone strength, heart health, all of that good stuff. And yes, we even anecdotally know that exercise is supposed to help with anxiety. It blows off steam. But but why? Like, what is the steam blowing offness? There's actual science behind that, which I didn't realize. And it's that it almost helps train your body to recognize those physical anxiety symptoms, the pounding heart, the chest pressure, the sweating and nervousness and breathlessness as just like a normal like, oh, we were just jogging. We're just jogging. And at the end of this, we're going to have a a kale me crazy smoothie, Kristen. And we're going to feel so much better. And so it really is like kind of a 
a tricking of your physical being. Yes, Caroline, I can personally attest to the life-changing importance of exercise. I've always been a bit of an exerciser, but once I, in the past mm, like five years, once I really started ingraining it into my routine of biking, running, yoga, like it, it, it is so different how I deal, when I can feel the anxiety coming on, if I'm able to go exercise, it's such a different outcome than what I used to do of like, well, I'm just going to have a glass of wine and I'll still have that glass of wine, but that not being the go-to like alcohol is not a great, (laughs) is really not a a cure for that. It might dull it Mm -hmm. for a moment, but exercise is, is such a good thing that you can do for your body. Well, yeah. And beyond getting your heart rate up, it's also, and I mean, I know that the, the snarky side of me wants to say that this is not true, but, um, it's almost a type of meditation. Like literally, maybe you are doing yoga and you're meditating as part of that. But I mean, getting into the groove of jogging and you're literally just thinking about taking the next step, taking the next breath. It does sort of take you out of that anxiety spiral about renewing your tag. One thing that doesn't help, though, which I am loath to give up, is caffeine. All, all the, the kind of lifestyle tips that you will read about anxiety is give up the caffeine. I'm like, I've, but no, 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 I, I, so here I am. I'm going to, I'm telling you listeners that other people say that this is good and I'm sure that it is good, <laughs> but I love coffee. There, yeah. I said it. I love it too. We are Garfield. Wait, no, Garfield's lasagna. Well, we're Garfield too, but we're Kathy. Is Kathy a coffee person? I feel like she drank coffee. We're every stereotypical cartoon. We are Nancy Botwin. She always had coffee. <laughs> yes! And perfect segue to weed. <laughs> Nancy Botwin, the leading character of the Genji Cohen show Weeds. Um, one thing I wanted to look in was whether or not smoking pot is good for anxiety. A, because pot is becoming more legalized, more women are smoking pot than ever before. Um, women are getting into the weed industry. There's a whole marijuana renaissance <laughs> afoot, especially for women. And one of the things that is often talked about in terms of um, why marijuana should be legalized, the way people get prescriptions for medical marijuana is that, oh, it helps my anxiety. And you have a skeptical look on your face a little bit. Well, yeah, just because I was remembering uh, this guy that I dated who was a jerk. And he wasn't a jerk because of this, but I, he was just a jerk. But I remember that he was constantly one of those unhelpful people that all anxious people are familiar with in their lives. He's just like, would you just relax? Ooh. Would you just chill out? Like, I mean, I don't care who you are. Like, that gets real old hearing that. But his go-to thing was always like, we just need to get you some weed. We just need to get you some weed so you'll relax. Well, and that's why I was curious to look at the research on it, because paranoia is often a side effect for many people if they smoke pot. Not that I've ever, ever, never done that. (laughs) Um, And studies do find mixed results. So if you have a panic disorder, research suggests weed... We'll probably amplify that. Oh, good. But a 2014 Vanderbilt study located a cannabinoid receptor in our amygdala, which is sort of that the emotional seat of the brain. And they think that it might be linked to anecdotal reports of weed 
chilling us out. If we're really anxious, then perhaps smoking pot can be a temporary fix. Now, I will go on the record as saying I, I don't think that there should be any substance, whether it's marijuana or wine or chocolate, you know, anything like that that's going to cure your anxiety. It needs to be part of a, a whole lifestyle kind of thing. But I think it's interesting to see how there is science is looking into how pot can uh, interact with our anxious or depressive symptoms. So are you telling me that even my cannabinoid receptors are anxious? Possibly. Or maybe they're just judgy because they're not receptive. Well, I mean, it could also it could also shift depending on the kind of strain of marijuana True. that you're smoking. Yeah. But we're now just getting into a whole other podcast. Yeah. We'll, we'll, podcast, we'll I wait mean. for letters from people, from listeners to tell us about that. Yeah, I do. I would love to hear letters from listeners. I know we've got a lot of letters out on the West Coast and we even have some weed farmers who listen. Yeah. So let us know. Yeah. Let us know. Um, another thing. So similarly to what I was saying about exercise of like, yes, we all know that it's good for you and you need to do it for general health, but also dealing with anxiety. It's the same thing with diet. And Kristen, this is something I had never heard before in terms of shifting your diet in order to deal with anxiety. Well, yeah, because think about it. Like, I don't know if you ever have weeks like this, Caroline, where you have no time and you're just eating out and maybe it, you had Cheez-Its and Diet Coke for lunch yesterday. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that was me. And that's disgusting. <laughs> um, and it will impact how you feel. It can, mm-hmm. food definitely impacts our moods. And so, uh, a really good article on women and anxiety in Glamour magazine cited an Australian study which found that women on whole foods diets, that's lowercase whole foods, <laughs> not the store, um, but things like fruits, veggies, whole grains, lean meats and fish were 32% less likely to experience anxiety, whereas women on high fat and processed food diets were 50% more prone to depression. That's, that's, do you hear that? It's the sound of my mind being blown, not only by those facts about eating better or whatever, but like the percents. That's crazy. My boyfriend and I talk all the time. So we're doing the Blue Apron meal delivery service thing, which is great. Which you should go to blueapron.com slash mom stuff, right, listeners? True, to get your Blue Apron deal. But we've really been enjoying it because it's really healthy food. It's easy to cook, all that good stuff. But when we're not doing that, we do have a tendency to eat out and we try not to do the pad thai all the time. But we've been talking in that way that you do when you're trying to do something healthy, but you don't have the time or the desire to get around to it, where we're like, you know, we really should go back to eating like fish and asparagus all the time. (laughs) And we really should because we both struggle with anxiety. Well, Caroline, I did not run across any studies on correlations between asparagus consumption and anxiety, Hmm. but you can give it a shot. I will. I will report back. On things besides how my pee smells after I eat asparagus. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And another thing that's important to keep in mind, as you might be integrating more exercise, healthier diet, yoga, weed brownies (laughs) into your lifestyle, is really learning your anxiety triggers and planning Mm -hmm. accordingly. That is one thing that my therapist is pretty adamant about, is having a plan. If there are situations where I know that certain things tend to happen, then mm-hmm. have a plan. And that can be very helpful. What's and your plan? Stop, drop, and roll? Yes. Yes. Because okay. I'm always terrified that everything's just going to burst into flames. But also, too, you have to give these management techniques 
a genuine chance of working. If you go to yoga twice and you're like, oh, I'm so feel awful. Yeah, of course you do. You know, like you, you usually need at least two months sticking with these kinds of things to really start feeling a difference. And that is the challenge of a lot of this mental health stuff is that it is an everyday process and there's no quick fix mm-hmm. and you have to be compassionate with yourself and patient with yourself and give yourself time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Be practice self-compassion. And also in terms of like when I feel anxiety, go come on, it's a good time to go for a jog. Also, my therapist recommended uh, when I do feel like when I get the type of anxiety that's totally out of proportion to what's going on, like I literally feel like I'm about to be chased by a lion or something. She's like, just drop and give yourself 20. And I was what? She literally said your fight or flight's kicking in. So give it something to fight with and do push ups. <laughs> It helps a little. I have been known to like, if I'm at home and I start to feel anxious, I have been known to drop down and start doing push-ups. Yeah, and it kind of gets some of that yeah, energy just, out. Well, yeah, because then by then I'm like, oh my God, I'm so distracted by how I can't push my body off the floor that it just turns into embarrassment. And then like, hmm, it's time for a snack. It's time for asparagus snack. <laughs> yeah. Well, listeners, I, I hope this has been comforting and maybe enlightening. For you, I'm, I'm really curious to hear from you. I'm sure that there are people listening who have very similar mental patterns that you deal with on a daily basis. And I think it's also helpful for people who don't have anxiety, but know people with anxiety in your life to hear this as well, because it, it's so irrational and we should be able to relax yeah, and just chill out. Stop telling us to relax. But it's but it's hard to. And I think it's it's really um, it's worthwhile to take a moment and understand why just relaxing is sometimes sometimes feels impossible. I don't want to say it is impossible, but it feels impossible. It does. Just more asparagus. More asparagus, please. So with that, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address because We'd love to get your letters. We want to know what kinds of things you've experienced in regard to anxiety and any additional tips that you have for managing it. Let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Again, is our email address. You can also tweet us at Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. And both of these letters, Caroline, are from our Couple Speak episode because it was adorable and people had so many letters to send us. And Paige wrote, I'm a longtime fan of your show and was listening to Couple Speak and wanted to write in regard to my different experiences with it. I've been dating my boyfriend for close to two years now. And while we usually refer to each other as baby or babe, we have a couple other names. One of them actually came from a typo I made. I was texting him and went to call him baby and managed to type Babu instead. He thought it was hilarious. And now when we're feeling goofy, we refer to each other as Babu. We also call each other Bab. And I call him my knight in rusted armor because rusted armor shows that a knight has been in battle and is willing to fight. Thanks for having such an entertaining show. You ladies make the workday go by so much faster. That just makes me think of Babar. The elephant? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and I might be mispronouncing it. Perhaps oh. it's Babu or Babu. I like Babu. And our intrepid producer just informed us that Babu is a Charlie Brown reference. I knew it sounded familiar. 
But I just thought it was because of Babar. Babu. Babu. Charlie Brown. Footballs. Well, I have a letter here from Cliff. Uh, and I love it. Uh, Cliff said, I enjoyed listening to your podcast about couple speak. My wife and I do have pet names. I am the rooster and she is the chicken. Is I am the rooster? No, it's I am the walrus. Okay. Uh, he said, it started after we heard a funny commercial about egg whites. The chicken in the story is in group, in a group therapy session explaining that her eggs have changed. At the end, she says, I'm going to be okay because I'm a good chicken. Well, the joke took, and from there on, when things get rough, she states she is going to be okay because she's a good chicken. Naturally, we started calling each other chicken and rooster. Actually, I call her my pretty little chicken. Enjoy your perspective on various topics. Keep up the great work. And keep listening, Cliff. Thank you. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one, with links to all of our sources so you can learn more about anxiety, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 